0: From 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump ahead to verses 36 through 38. So if you're able, would you stand with me one last time this morning? We're going to read God's Word together. I'm not going to read the whole story, but we will look at it. But for the sake of time, we'll look at verses 1 through 3, and then drop down to 36 through 38. So 1 Samuel 25, beginning at verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and buried him in his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Drop down to verse 36. It says there, Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Father, we thank you this morning for your Word. We thank you for this church and for all the folks that have gathered here today. I pray now that your Spirit would move in our lives, Lord, that we would allow you to search our hearts, that you would expose in us places where we are the problem where we can act a little too much like Nabal ourselves. Help us to see it, and help us to see the remedy, which is humility in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to turn to Him today. We love You, Lord, and thank You again for this opportunity to be here today to worship You in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. You notice that our text starts out with one of the most well-known people in the Bible, and certainly most well-known people in Israel dying without really a whole lot said there's not a lot of fanfare verse one then samuel died that's his epitaph for a life well lived and while we're obviously looking at the life of david in this series i think it's important to pause for just a moment and think about the impact that this would have had not just on david but on israel here is a man who was the last of the judges he was a prophet he was a priest He had done so many things in his 80 to 90 years of life, however old around that time that he was, dedicated by his mother Hannah, and served Israel faithfully, served God faithfully for so many years, even when his family didn't, even when Israel didn't. Samuel remained constant. And here he dies. You can only imagine what it's like, and perhaps you faced this before, when someone very important in your life, whether it's a family member, a friend, or just an acquaintance, somebody that really mattered to you, passes away there's a hole there that no one else can ever really fill, and I'm sure for David he felt that way his spiritual mentor if you will is gone and so we're not told why David goes out into the wilderness but perhaps it has something to do with him grieving or just questioning or just needing a, a fresh start we've all been there I think at times where we just feel like we need to change the scenery We need to just get away for a while and get our thoughts together. And I believe, without reading too much into the Scriptures, that that's probably where David was at in his life. And so he goes off into the wilderness, and then in verse 2 we're introduced to two people. So there's three people primarily in our text today, David, and the two we're going to look at here, Nabal and Abigail, his wife. And I want us to try to look at each of these people And then I want us to try to see how we shouldn't be like one, probably two, at least in this circumstance, but more like the third and how we can draw some help from Abigail's example today. So let's look, number one, at this man named Nabal. We're introduced to him in verses two and three. Now, if you're taking notes, you can put this down. First, we're going to look at the foolish man. The foolish man. Nabal in Hebrew means fool. I, I struggle to believe that when this bundle of joy was first born, that his parents looked at each other and said, fool would be a fantastic name. Now there's some weird, I'm just going to be honest, there's some weird names nowadays, in my mind, maybe not, but it seems to me that people sometimes name their kids some pretty weird names, Right? Especially out there on the, on the West Coast. Not to point fingers, but out there there's some really weird names sometimes. And to each his own, that's okay. But I, I, I believe when I read a lot of these commentaries on this portion of Scripture, some of these folks think that Nabal was not his real name. It's a nickname. It really, doesn't really matter, but I think it makes more sense that you probably wouldn't name your kid Fool. But maybe as they grow up, you think they are. And maybe they act like one. I've heard moms and dads say before, quit acting like a fool, right? We, sometimes we act like a fool. But Nabal was definitely a fool in his life. And when the Bible calls someone a fool, it's not talking about intellectually. It's not saying necessarily that their brain dead and they, they, they can't think right. What it means is they're godless. They live their lives in a godless way. The Bible describes foolish people as being separate from God, and wise people as walking with God. So that's primarily the understanding of this word. He's a fool because in Psalm 14.1 it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. That's a summary statement of Nabal's life. And we'll see that as we look at this story today. He is a fool because he lives his life as if there is no God and he's not accountable to this God. Let me give you another verse of Scripture that would describe the life of Nabal. Isaiah 32, verse 6 says this, The foolish person will speak foolishness. We shouldn't expect any different. Sinners will sin. Lost people are going to act like lost people. We shouldn't be shocked by that, guys. The foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness. Ungodliness. To utter error against the Lord. To keep the hungry unsatisfied. And he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Notice, it starts in his heart, but it carries over into his actions. It says, to keep the hungry unsatisfied. They have the ability to help people, but they choose not to because they have the disease of me. Selfishness. They're focused on only them and what they can get for themselves and how they can live their life in a way that pleases them. They're hedonistic. They are only concerned with their own pleasure. And that, again, describes the fool, in this case, the fool named Nabal. What else can we learn about him in these verses? Well, number two, it says, in verse two, it says, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. The word there, very rich, in the Hebrew means heavy. We would probably say in our world today, he was loaded. He had a lot of money, a lot of wealth. The Bible describes it to us. Again, in our terms, this may not sound like much, but in those days, it was a tremendous amount of wealth. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he's shearing sheep in Carmel. So that tells us that this is a time not only where the sheep are being sheared, so we would say this is payday. It's payday, basically. They're getting ready to get some more money. And it would also have fallen around the time of the harvest. So if he had crops, which we're going to say that he most likely did, he is going to get a good-sized payday from this thing. But we're also going to see that that's all his mind was focused on, was himself and his stuff. That was his God. Those were his two gods, himself and his stuff. And that's what the Bible describes this man as being. May I ask you a question without you having it and shout it out. What are you known for today? When people talk about you, what is it primarily that you are known for? Serving the Lord, godliness, faithfulness, or stuff? Or worse, self-centered, self-focused attitude? I think it's important that we ask ourselves sometimes, what am I ultimately known for? What legacy am I leaving in my life? How do I impact those around me, good or bad? It says in verse 3 of Nabal that he was a harsh man and evil in his dealings or his doings. And also notice the Bible gives us more details. He was of the house of Caleb. Not the Caleb back there in the sound room, but Caleb and Joshua the faithful man, when all of that generation was unfaithful, remember, it was only Caleb and Joshua that believed that they could go into the promised land and take it by faith. And so he has a lineage of faith in his family, but he goes in the complete and opposite direction. Guys, if you're dependent on your grandparents' faith, mom and dad's faith, my faith to help you, we can encourage you by our walk, and we should, and our life, and we should. But we can't save you. And we can't sanctify you. That's up to you to live according to the Word of God and to follow Jesus Christ in your own life. This man had the background, but it hadn't changed him a bit. He had become his own worst enemy, so to speak. And here's the thing about it, guys. There are plenty of Nabels in the world today. And the world applauds Nabels They call them businessmen very savvy in the way that they deal with things and and, and they don't they don't steal they just find loopholes and they know how to manipulate the tax laws and they know how to do business dealings that we would say are shady but they find a way to excuse themselves because they're doing for them taking care of themselves and they're getting more stuff but the bible says in psalm 127 1 unless the lord builds the house They labor in vain who build it. And I stand up here just about every week and I say to you in some way, shape, or form that there's people in this room and there's people watching online and there's people that I interact with on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And you are currently today investing in the wrong kingdom. You are investing in the wrong kingdom. I'm not saying that you don't deposit anything into the kingdom of God, but it's normally the leftovers, and it's normally when it's convenient for you. Because ultimately, you and your kingdom is first. And that takes the majority of your time. And it always will, until you decide and realize that there's only one God on the throne, and that will never be you. And you can chase everything in this world, To try to bring you honor and glory in your kingdom. But one of these days, you're going to leave this life. And all of your stuff will be gone. And your kingdom is going to come down like a house of cards. And you will stand before the one true God. The King of kings and Lord of lords. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Whose kingdom cannot be shaken and cannot be moved. And you will give an answer to Him. And an account of your life. And if you're a believer, you will watch everything that was so important to you be burned up before your very eyes. Because if you build with wood, hay, and stubble, the Bible says the day will declare it because it will be consumed like a fire. The Bible says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It may seem so important to us now to chase things. But when we enter eternity, we'll find out how foolish, how much like Nabal, That really is. And again, I am in no way, shape, or form preaching to you to say that it's wrong to have things. And I am in no way, shape, or form telling you that the only way to be right with God is to to completely detach from life, join a monastery, become a monk, and hang out in a cave and pray 24-7 all your life. Obviously, that's not what the Bible is speaking of. But we're talking about priorities, and we're talking about where our focus is, and we're talking about who is our first love. The church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation had lost and left their first love. And Jesus encouraged them to repent or he would remove the candlestick from their life, from their church. It's sad to see people who used to have the power of God on their life and no longer do because they've chased after other gods that are powerless to build up their own kingdom. And what I've found is most of the time when you're in that place and a preacher or the Holy Spirit Begins to convict you about that. You get upset. Because none of us like to have our idols exposed. We just don't. It's our kingdom and how dare anyone come into that. And tell us what to do with our kingdom. I may not be welcome in your kingdom. But Jesus is sovereign over you and your kingdom. And he has all right and authority to say to you what he wants to say to you today. And he says repent. That's what he says. And I think even when we look at the commandments that he left for Israel, the Ten Commandments, what's the very first one? I don't think he just put them in random order, do you? I think they're in order for a reason. God doesn't do anything accidentally. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. So the first commandment is what? Exodus 20, verse 3. Shall have no other gods before me. And having a God is not simply an idol that you fall down and worship before. An idol is anything that replaces God. Anything in your life that takes the place of worship that only God is entitled to is an idol in your life. Billy Graham used to say, give, a man, give me five minutes with a man's checkbook and I can tell you where his priorities are. When you look at your finances, does it say that the kingdom matters? Does it show that you are invested in seeing the gospel spread as much as you are getting things and having bigger and better each week? Look at where you spend your time and your energy in any given week. How much of that 168 hours that God credits into your account each week do you spend for Him? How much of that is dedicated to doing the work of the Lord and spending time with Him? Look at the fruit that you produce, if there is any, and ask yourself, is it evident that I'm producing the fruit of the Spirit, that I'm producing good fruit in my life? Or would people be shocked to find out that I'm even a Christian if they knew I was? Only you can answer those questions. But Nabal is a fool because he denies God. And it doesn't say anywhere in this text that he came out and said that with his lips. But his life said it. And you may be here today and you say, I, I would I've never, would never say that God is not important in my life. But your life says He isn't. The way you live says He isn't, at least not first. And I'm not trying to condemn you today, but I'm trying to get you to see through the Word of God that you can't stay in that place and be living in the will of God as a believer. Unbelievers, I get it. I don't expect you to follow God. You don't know Him. But if you're saved and born again, You will never be satisfied chasing other things. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up the cross, your cross, and follow me. Jesus isn't going to build your kingdom. He's going to build His kingdom. And He allows us to be a part of that work. But you've got to deny yourself, take up an instrument of death, it's not just jewelry we wear on our neck. The cross is an instrument of death. He's saying you deny yourself, die to self, and follow me where I'm going. Tim Keller, pastor and author, he says this, Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a good thing, more than God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Listen to that again. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin, he says, is primarily idolatry. Nabal was a foolish man. But we're going to meet somebody else that's a polar opposite. A faithful woman. Write that down. Number two, the faithful woman. Notice in verse 3, we're introduced to her briefly. It says the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife was Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding. That could literally mean she was discerning. She had a lot of insight. She spoke with wisdom. What did we say that the Bible describes someone who is wise as being? A godly person. A godly person exercises wisdom. The Bible says that she was wise and that she was beautiful. She walked with God which gave her even more beauty. It's not just about externals. Young ladies, middle-aged ladies, older ladies. We are so obsessed today. Our culture is so obsessed about what these bodies look like. I'm going to tell you something. As you get older, gravity is going to work on you. There's no way around it. And all the tummy tucks and liposuctions and facelifts that you want to have are not going to be able to keep up with the effects of aging. True beauty is in here. True beauty is following God. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking care of yourself. You should. But, that's not again where our focus ought to be. Our focus ought to be as believers in seeing the inside be beautified. See the Lord Jesus working inside of us. We are exactly who we're supposed to be in Christ. You don't need to try to impress anybody With all sorts of surgeries and and this, that, and the other thing. You're beautiful because of your relationship with Jesus. And that goes for you guys too. Amen? We're not going to leave out you guys. All right? So listen, I thought about this when I was preparing this message this week. Have you ever stopped and thought about how many counselors in life there are anymore? Like, it seems like there's a counselor for so many situations in life. We have marriage counselors. We have drug and alcohol counselors. We have family counselors. We have mental health counselors. And I'm thankful for those people. I really am. And they're necessary in a lot of circumstances and situations. But why do we have so many counselors? Because there are so many issues. That's the reason. If there weren't issues, there wouldn't be a need for those folks. Seems pretty logical to me. And one of the biggest ones that there is a need for is marriage counselors. I'm asked almost monthly by someone, not always in the church, just people that know me in general, hey, do you do marriage counseling? Do you know someone that does marriage counseling? Relationships are not easy, guys. We ought not to make them harder than they already are. Relationships are difficult. Please don't make it worse by not doing it God's way. If you're a believer, He's already told you how to have godly relationships. And every time you choose to do it your way, you're only compiling the problems that you're going to have. Because even the most godly, wonderful marriages are going to go through rough patches. It's going to happen. You know why? Because two sinners came together. And where there are two sinners, there's going to be sin. When you come together in a church and there's this many sinners in one room, don't be surprised when there's problems. Again, I'm not justifying that, not condoning it, but it's going to happen because people are people and they're going to act that way in the flesh sometimes. But we think, because of the disease of me, my relationship is going to be the exception. I know what you said, God, and I've seen countless other people wreck their lives by doing it their way, but I am convinced Mine will be different. That this will work out. Sometimes we even convince ourselves that we have a special connection with God. And he overlooks the things that we do because it's us. Or better yet, it's our kingdom. And what I've found is this. You ever notice this? God's rules don't apply in our kingdom. They apply in everybody else's. But God's rules are easily dismissed in our kingdom. Because who's on the throne in our kingdom? We are. God just comes alongside of us, and and you notice that God always agrees with us in our kingdom. He always says yes, doesn't He? But He doesn't always say yes in His kingdom. And we have a hard time sometimes distinguishing those things. I was going to pick on Brian this morning. I was going to have you come up here and, and help me with an illustration, and I forgot to ask you, Brian, so I won't have you come up here. But imagine if I did have Brian come up here And Brian stood on this chair. I had him standing on this chair. Brian's a pretty big guy. Stronger than I am, for sure. And if I had Brian stand on that chair, and I grabbed his hand and he grabbed mine, and I said, okay, Brian, I'm going to try as hard as I can to pull you down, and you try as hard as you can to pull me up on that chair with you, who do you think would win? I would win. I've got gravity working, and also I've got the leverage. I'm on firm ground That's exactly what happens when we get into relationships, whether it's unequally yoked or whether it's not God's will. Because again, I hear people say, I've seen this, heard it, watched it play out countless times. Well, I know that they're not a believer. I know that they're not living how they ought to live. I know that they're not you fill in the blank. But... I believe. Notice, I believe in my kingdom that I will be able to lift them up and set them on a firm foundation. There is someone that can lift you up out of the miry clay and set you on a firm foundation. And it ain't you. And it ain't me. It's God. And anytime we think that we're going to pull somebody up, we're in for a rude awakening. I could, I could probably spend an hour naming names of people that I know that used to serve God and were part of a church that aren't any longer because they got in relationships where they were pulled away from church and pulled away from God. I've seen it countless times. What I can't do is stand up here and tell you that I know a whole list of people that did it their way and it worked out better. I just don't have that list. Maybe you do. I don't. And I've never seen it. And I've never talked to a pastor that's seen it. So I'm simply saying this today to warn you. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Notice the first part of that verse. How do these relationships happen? How does this type of thinking happen? Deception. And that's the thing about deception. When you are deceived... It does not matter if the Holy Spirit Himself is the one speaking to you. You are convinced that you are right. Because deception blinds us. Literally blinds us to the truth. And that's why when someone pokes that area of your life or God shines light into that area of your life, you immediately become defensive. You immediately get upset. You immediately say, I'm going to go somewhere else where they don't talk about those kinds of things, where they make me feel good about myself because ultimately I am God in my kingdom and how dare anyone tell me how to live my life. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. If you wanted to continue to live in your foolish, nabalistic life, chasing the world and living for you, You picked the wrong religion to join yourself to. You picked a religion that says die to self and follow Jesus. If you wanted to live like a fool, you should have just stayed lost. And listen, I'm just going to be honest, maybe you are. If you don't have any desire to serve God and follow Him and obey Him, maybe you are lost. I don't know that. I can't firmly declare that. All I'm saying is, why is there not a desire? Why is there not a change in your life? If you say that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, met you at some point in your life and came in and changed you, how can that not make you different? I'm not saying perfect. I'm not saying sinless. I'm not saying we don't backslide and get in places in our life where we're outside the will of God. But is there any conviction in your life anymore? Is there any desire to live for Him anymore? Do you want to do it His way? As weak and as failing as you are, do you want to do it His way? Or are you just satisfied to keep building your kingdom? This faithful woman comes along and we're going to see in a moment how she offers instruction to this third person that I want to look at real brief and that is number three, there's a furious king. Let me just briefly explain to you the rest of the story that I didn't read. So, Nabal has other men, shepherds, that are taking care of all these sheep and doing the dirty work, and he's just sitting back getting a paycheck, all right? And so one of the things that would happen is there would be groups of soldiers, David and his men in this circumstance, who would go into areas of the wilderness, and they would sort of provide protection, if you will, for these men. If there were roving bands of bandits that were about that wanted to do bad David and his men would have protected these shepherds and the sheep and made sure nothing happened to them. They weren't asked to do that. It was sort of just a good deed that was done. And as a result of doing that, just like when we go to a restaurant and we get good service, we hopefully leave a tip. Well, the time comes, David sends some of his men to Nabal and says, hey, basically saying, hey, we have watched over your sheep and we have taken care of your men. You have not lost one of anything because of our protection we would really appreciate it if you would make a donation to the David and His Men Fund. They opened a GoFundMe account and said, would you put some money into this thing for us? Would you provide us with some food and some provisions for doing this for you? Now, I'm going to drop down to verse 10 and 11 and I want you to see... Nabal, whose God is himself and whose God is himself, he has the disease of me. Notice his response to David's request after David and his men have been good to him and done these things for him. Verse 10, Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Not, that's not a question. That's a sarcastic response. He knew who David was. He's basically saying, Why should I care who he is? Why should I care about David? He's nobody to me. That's the the attitude here. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from their master. That's a dig. That's a dig at him. He's saying, how do I know he's not just some guy that went off on his own and he's just in rebellion and he's not doing what he ought to do? Why should I care about this guy? He's nothing to me. Verse 11. Notice the personal pronouns here shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men that I do not know where they are from. He's saying, this is my stuff. I've worked hard to get it. And I don't care about David or anybody else. I don't care what they've done for me. I don't owe them anything. So go on your way. That's basically what he's saying here. And notice in verse 13, David's response. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. David is a warrior. Remember what the Israelite women sang when he came back from slaughtering Goliath? Saul has killed his thousands. David has tens of thousands. This was not somebody that you wanted to get on their bad side. When he said to his men, Gird on your swords, he was not planning something nice. This was not going to end good for Nabal. He says, Gird on his sword, so every man girded on his sword, and David girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. So David is getting ready to execute judgment. Now, if you've been with us and you've been going through this series with us, you know this is not the first time that David has been treated bad. Is it? I mean, Saul has tried to kill him several times. His wife has done things and thrown him under the bus. His own child later on is going to try to kill him. I mean, David is no stranger to being abused and mistreated. And here's the thing in this situation that struck me. Even at the end of chapter 24, Saul is in a cave and so is David. David had a perfect opportunity to kill Saul. He could have ended it right there and he didn't. He cuts off a little piece of the garment of Saul and shows him, I could have killed you but I showed you mercy. Over and over and over, David has opportunities to react foolishly and he keeps his cool and he keeps his patience and now just out of the blue in this situation where this guy says these sarcastic snarky remarks he's ready to commit murder here's the thing david had every right to be mad but he had no right to murder someone over it do you see what we're looking at here James 1.19 says be slow. It doesn't say don't ever be angry, but it says be slow to anger. And there are times in our life when we get in the flesh and anger just immediately rises up. And we're not justified in the way that we react. We might be justified to be upset, but we overreact because of the disease of me. How dare someone insult the king of his kingdom? How dare someone, do they not realize that the sun rises and sets on me? How dare they treat me that way? The disease of me. One writer said this. He said, victories won today are temptations to be fought tomorrow. You may have victory and victory and victory over yourself and over your pride, but that doesn't mean that you're not ever going to come to a place where it's a struggle. And we see that with David. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians ten twelve, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are all prone to taking a fall in our life. Drop down to verse 21. David is fuming. He is hot by now. It says in verse 21, David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness." so that nothing was missed of all that he uh, belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. David is going to go out, and he is going to kill Nabal. He's going to kill his servants. Probably kill everything. Just kill everything that's moving at this point. He is just irate. He's tired of being used and abused. Can you relate? I can. We all get there sometimes. There was a story in the Denver Post. It said two teenage girls decided to skip the school activity and bake cookies for their neighbors. After baking the cookies, the girls set out late that evening. They only brought the fresh baked cookies to the houses with lights on. They knocked on the door of one home and a 49-year-old woman inside didn't answer the door. But instead of answering the door for these little girls who had went out of their way to make cookies to bring to people as a gesture of good, instead of answering the door, she complained to authorities the next day that the girls caused her to suffer anxiety. After a trip to the emergency room the next day, the woman sued them and eventually won. The girls had to pay $900 to cover the emergency room visit, and the woman told a reporter she hoped the girls had learned their lesson. Sometimes, no matter how much good you try to do for people, they will return evil on you. You can't control that. Don't let it change who you are. And don't let it make you respond in a way that builds your kingdom rather than God's. I want you to look with me. We're going to wrap up here. I want you to look at Abigail again with me. And I want you to see the counsel that she gives to David. You might say, Well, now, wait a minute. Nabal's her husband. Why didn't she give him counsel? Well, several times in our text, we will see you can't talk to this guy. Basically, is what she says and his servants say. We don't even bother to go to this guy anymore. He won't listen. Everything we say to him, he's got an answer for it. He is a know-it-all. Know anybody like that? They know everything. Just ask them. Teenagers are good at this. I wish I could go back to when I was 16 and knew everything. You know, I've forgotten a lot of it along the way. But there's a time when some people think they know everything. I'm just kidding with you, by the way. I don't really believe that about you. But I want you to see what she offers in the way of counsel and advice. And I think this is very important for us when we are reacting in a way that we shouldn't. Look at verses 23 through 25. Let's read these real quick. It says there, uh, Abigail says, When she saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed down to the ground, and said, she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this, this is his wife, regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Number one, Nabal is instructing David and also us to not return evil for evil. When you are wronged and you are furious like David is, don't follow the propensity to return evil for evil. 1 Peter 3.9 tells us that. It says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You say, how do I do that when it's so difficult? It's when Jesus and His kingdom is first. You don't need to always be honored. You don't need to always be thought well of. You don't need to worry about how people respond. You're only accountable to Him. And if you did what is right in His eyes, you've got your reward. Don't worry about them. If that's how they reacted, God will judge them. Do not repay evil for evil. Notice what is said in verse 28 as we go on down through this. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. That literally could say an eternal dynasty because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Number two, I want you to remember as a believer, don't forget the calling that God has on your life. Don't forget the testimony and the witness that you are to take out into the world. Don't ruin that by acting in a way like Nabal would like David is doing in this situation. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You are in the army of the living God. And He gives the orders. Don't go out and be a rogue soldier and take the law into your own hands. Do it His way. Serve Him faithfully. And remember, that you have a calling on your life to live different from the world. The world is going to react that way. Believers shouldn't. And finally, verse 29, he says, uh, as, as we go on down there, yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. The last thing is he's saying there is basically is God will fight your battles. God will take care of things. Don't take it in your own hand. Let God fight your fights. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And finally, we come to the end of this story and the end of this sermon. Nabal goes out because Nabal only cares about him and he only cares about his kingdom. He just got paid. Just had a big time, all the money's rolled in, and he has a party. He has a party, and he gets himself intoxicated, very much. So much that Abigail says, I'm not even going to waste my breath trying to talk to this guy tonight, I'm going to let him sleep it off. And the next morning, she goes to him, and she explains to him that David, the David that he decided to be snarky with, had 400 men on the way to the house to put an end to his life. And the Bible says his heart stopped and he became like stone. Can you imagine if you got news that in a couple hours there was going to be an army outside your door ready to do you in? Like, that was the news that he got. But then we see the story ends. I mean, Samuel, this great man of God, it says he died. But his legacy lives on. Well, you can read the story of Samuel and see the things that he did. Verse 38, then it happened after about ten days. The Lord struck Nabal. What's the last three words? And he died, just like Samuel. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Someday, after our name, those same three words are going to be written. He died, she died. What kind of legacy are you leaving? What kind of eternity are you heading into? Without Jesus, you're lost. With Jesus, you are forever free and saved with Him. Are you living your life in such a way that is worthy of that calling in your life? That people see a difference in you? That they realize that God is the one that you serve and His kingdom is where you're interested in? Or are you building your own kingdom? You've heard the Word of God today. Now a decision has to be made. Will you be wise and walk in it? Or you will be foolish and reject it? And that choice is yours. But I simply ask you today, do you have the disease of me? Is your life primarily about you and your pleasure and your wants and wishes and desires? Or is it about serving God and serving others? Are you laying up treasure in heaven? Are you building your kingdom here on earth? You can't do both. You may think you may be deceived this morning and think you can. But you won't. No one ever has, and you will not be the exception. My prayer today is that you will follow Jesus. That you'll follow Him to Calvary if you've never been saved and trust Him by faith alone as your Savior. And if you've been to Calvary and you've met Jesus and you've peered into the empty tomb and seen that it's empty and you've been saved and born again, and you've gotten off the path and you're not following him where he wants to go, I pray that today you would follow him. That you would say, Lord, I'm ready to be used by you. I'm ready to do what you want me to do, no matter where it takes me. Because I trust you. Phyllis is going to come, and we're going to have a song of invitation. And if you are ready to make a decision during this invitation is the time to do that. And I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time to be together. I pray now, Lord, that you'd have your way in this invitation, that you would speak to our hearts and change our lives as we walk in faith and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we.